Vanna, do we have any of those letters? Ding. <laughs> Ding. Ding. Christine is so not amused. <laughs> Fools rushing. It's the Limbaugh Podcast Show. With Brian Christine Clay, you know. And guests who drop on by. Oh. Welcome to episode 19 of The Limbaugh. This is a show about the Presidential Medal of Freedom, who's received it, who should receive it, maybe a couple who shouldn't. My name is Clay Russell. I'm Christine Sear. And I'm Brian Tuft. On today's show, Christine is going to do a profile on wealthy New York socialite Brooke Astor. I don't know much about Miss Astor, uh, except for her place, so we will find out more about that. Mm-hmm. First thing I wanted to start with, we haven't necessarily talked about a whole lot regarding the pandemic on the show. But What pandemic? <laughs> yes, exactly. It's Limbaugh policy, just like Rush Limbaugh, to pretend like it didn't exist. You mean the pandemic of the liberal left? That one. The one ruining our kids' minds. But in today's New York Times, there was an article that was published with an intriguing headline. This was after uh, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said, quote, you can't just sit around all day in your pajamas to work. And uh, the uh, Times has a bit of a counter argument with that. The title of it is, wait, what if people just stay home in their pajamas? And it is an intriguing article about the state of urban areas. Uh, Anyone who's listened to the show knows that the three of us are are huge fans of New York City and we care about the the health of it and and make sure that it's thriving. My question for both of you is, do we need to have these areas of New York City that are only populated for about 10 hours a day and then are empty that don't provide housing for people? Is that something that that we should still have in the future of urban areas? Is there a benefit to that? Or is there something to be said about maybe equalizing the areas where people do work and have a bit more of a neighborhood-centric layout to New York City? Yeah, it's as someone who's spent a lot of time working in both Midtown and the financial district, it's, it's weird to think that And I know New York isn't the only city like this. I know London, I think, had a similar struggle. Like, what about the Pret in, you know, the financial district that's going to have to shut Mm -hmm. down? And it's like the idea that major sections of the city sort of had a single purpose, which is be a place where people go to the office from nine to five, Monday through Friday, and then they leave. Like, that wasn't a very... And it's effectively a ghost town in those areas, and it's not housing for people. Exactly. That's the biggest thing with, like, any kind of investment, including real estate, is, like, diversification and the idea that, like, the hubris of city developers or, like, the real estate companies themselves to be like, yeah, this neighborhood not only is like this now, but it's going to be like this forever. So let's just make this a place where offices exist. Like, and now they're trying to like reverse engineer it that way when, yeah, a huge proportion of the city's workers and residents are saying like, no, I kind of like sticking around at least closer to home. Even if someone's like, oh yeah, I would love to, you know, as long as my commute's 20 minutes, I don't mind going to the office a few days a week, but like a 10 times a week, hour or more commute one way. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, why are we doing that now? You're right. Yeah. I think that's something that I found interesting in the Rick Burns New York documentary is that he spoke about the idea of commuting to work was brand new when New York came to be in prominence. Before that, you would wake up, go downstairs, and either walk a short distance to work or literally have your home be your workplace Mm -hmm. commuting is a lot of people should realize that the idea of commuting to work is a relatively new thing in human history yeah so a few weeks ago i saw fran Leibowitz in conversation with martin scorsese 
um, at the New York City Town Hall. Jealous. And the two of them lamented about the death of Midtown, as they were calling it, because so many things have gone out of business because no one is going in. And they talked about a building that the two of you know well, 45 Rock. And I don't remember if it was Fran or if it was Marty, but somebody walked through the sub lobby where all of the restaurants were and mm-hmm. said that all of the businesses were closed. The shoe shine place, the like stores, the florist, all of it had closed during the pandemic. And they were like, we're worried that that's never going to come back. And while I think that that is true, those were small businesses in most, in I would say 50% of the cases, a lot of them have been replaced by chains like Sweet Green and Ben and Jerry's and stuff. But at the same time, I know that like local businesses in my neighborhood uh, in central Queens have said that the reason they were able to make it through the pandemic was people were working from home and weren't just ordering dinner because they couldn't go to a restaurant re- with regularity, but like were sometimes even ordering lunch and were taking advantage of lunch specials that they didn't know existed for delivery because they didn't have anywhere else to look. It was either you make your own lunch or you figure out who can walk to your house. And so to me, it's a true catch-22. Like, while I am very sad that certain institutions in Midtown may cease to exist, I am glad that the local guy who lives in my neighborhood, uh, who runs a pizzeria, still has his business because I was working from home or was unemployed and was, you know, operating from home. And also, if you are a retail business... Does it make sense to pay four, five, six times what you would in rent to be in an area in Midtown that, again, is going to be populated for about nine hours a day? Or would you rather be in Forest Hills and be able to kind of capitalize on that community there? Maybe something that will come from this equalization of of workers around the city is that we may have a bit of a comeback of the mom and pop store. That would be awesome. And I think when you say ghost town, like people may think har har. But I remember my mom used to work on Wall Street, uh, 111, uh, the City Corp building. And it was literally the one next to the seaport. And she used to take us in for take your child to work day. And then we would go in on Christmas Eve because it was a, you know, usually an easy day. And there was some malfunction where they had miswired like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we wound up getting out like an hour and a half later than the three o'clock end of day for the city for Christmas Eve. And while we were walking up Wall Street in broad daylight, there was like no one on the street around us. Like it was completely empty. Like I am legend level shit. And like we all, it was me, my mom and my sister. I had to have been about maybe 10 or 11. And my mother and I kept remarking to each other, like there's no one on the street. And finally, by the time we hit new street or something like we were like running up the up wall street to get to the M train station on broad street. Like, I mean, it was truly so fucking scary because like there was no reason to be there. There was, there were no, I mean, now it's a little bit better because, you know, we've started turning some of those buildings into residential housing, but this was like the late nineties. I mean, there was, there was no one around. I remember when I first moved to New York in 2003, one of my very first jobs, there was like a rush delivery on something. And I offered to, to personally take it down to, this area down on Wall Street, it was probably seven o'clock at night, something like that. And this was in the era of terrorism and orange alerts and red alerts and blah, 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 blah. Uh, so you had a lot more cops with automatic guns out on the street. And I remember just walking down a street on Wall Street and there was a police officer with like the tactical gear and like the, you know, automatic rifle and because I was the only one on the street, just this guy with his finger on a trigger, just staring at me like the entire time that I was walking down the street. And just do we need to have that? Like, does it make sense to have an area that, as you said, the diversification of of living areas? Like, do we have to have that anymore? I feel like it maybe it's just dumb to, to have that. Why not make that into housing and and really spread things out more? Also, don't you just feel like out of principle, like on a large scale, cities are supposed to evolve to like the desires and needs of the people in that city, the city. And I I mean that like in a weird sort of proper noun, like the people who manage the city shouldn't be telling the people how to use the city. People are saying pretty loud and clear first out of necessity because of like the original rampant passage of covid 
and now we're sort of, who knows, <laughs> in the twilight of COVID, hopefully, people are saying loud and clear, we don't want to do that anymore. And and the we, mm-hmm. the, it just feels very, like, it doesn't feel right for, like, the powers that be to be like, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because it's like... And what will that do? Like, what will that do to housing prices if, let's say, charitably speaking, that from 30th Street to 60th Street in Manhattan would be uh, non-residential areas? What would happen if those 30 blocks suddenly opened up to housing and how that would make it a bit more of a livable city in terms of its affordability? Yeah. I mean, there's no grocery stores because no one's been living there. There aren't the sort of things that people need to make a life there, but it would happen. It would happen. And I think also the thing that everyone says against Midtown is like it's soulless and it's soulless because it's centered around like corporate offices, like places they want to have lunch, places they want to have dinner or a happy hour. Again, I spent (laughs) Clay and I have spent a lot of time at like corporate happy hour places in Midtown. And it's fine, but that shouldn't be the entire purpose of the neighborhood. And Midtown is very well, I mean, it's, as it says in the name, it's very well connected in terms of transit. It's pretty easy to get almost anywhere in Manhattan from Midtown. Midtown's very convenient to Queens, less so to Brooklyn, but it would be a good place to live in a central part of the city if it it were livable. And again, I'm not saying that these businesses should disappear. They would still be there, but it would mostly be an area where you would congregate for those rare in-person meetings. And maybe if you have a 50-story building, let's say 40 of those 50 stories can be for residential and have 10 for actual in-person businesses. Like, I feel like this isn't that that controversial of an yeah. idea. Yeah. I mean, don't you guys have like a little like doctor's office or something that you've been to that's in a mixed use building where some of the floors are residential and some are sure. businesses yeah. like th- these yeah. buildings exist. We know how to do it. Right. This isn't rocket science. <laughs> I think Eric Adams is doing an OK job, but let's admit it. He is very pro business. He is in the pocket of the business lobby. And uh, yeah, he's going to say things like you can't just sit around wearing pajamas all day because these uh, companies are are pushing him to try to return these business districts to the way that they were in 2019. But guess what? This was a major disruption and a major change. And if New York doesn't want to change with the times, then we're in trouble. And I think that it's going to be a change that is coming, whether they want it to or not. Mm -hmm. I just saw that uh, Chase J.P. Morgan, um, due to their recent influx of new hires and young, like under 40 employees, they held a vote company wide to see if they if the office would be mandatory. And all of the like people who are like 40 and under who voted, no, it should not be mandatory. We're going to be overruled. And then they threatened a mass exodus. And we're like, well, then we'll all find other jobs that will allow us to work remote. And now J.P. Morgan is going to make the office an optional space and cut down on its uh, real estate footprint. Yeah, at the end of the day, Manhattan and to an extent New York City businesses, it is an intellectual job. You need to have bright, educated people to work there. And guess what? Like if you're going to have some nonsensical way of working, they're going to go somewhere else. I mean, not to kick... The founders of WeWork, when they're down, um, stream We Crashed on Apple TV+. Plus, But now is the time for WeWork. I know. <laughs> well, and I think also, I'm just going to spit this out, and if it's absolutely terrible, uh, we, <laughs> we can fix it in post. But it's sort of like, why would it be an individual person's job to like shoulder this burden that the city is imposing on us? to to save the giant real estate developers. I've started freelancing and I don't have any intention of having an office. I intend to like work out of my home and that's going to Because you don't need to. Like, yeah, and it's going to be great for me. You need to be in an office for that. So I like what? I owe the city to get a corporate job and start commuting into Manhattan? Like no, I don't. No. Yeah. You you had lunch at your local German place. You had your dry cleaning you went grocery shopping you did all that i do everything just in my because, neighborhood now yeah yeah just because you're spending your money in forest hills and not west 36th street shouldn't make a difference mm-hmm. that's taxpayer money that you're spending 
again, as you said, this only has a negative effect on the developers that are in that area. And just because your money is being spent elsewhere doesn't mean that that you're hurting the city. Right. And I won't name names because I want to protect all people in my life. But somebody that I know worked for a real estate company and was told that they had to go back to the office because they had to set an example because if people didn't go back to the office, they would be hurt financially beyond repair because they would no longer be able to lease out that space. And to me, it's very clear that whoever was putting that into my friend's ear, it's either them or somebody maybe a little bit more significantly higher up putting that same shit in Eric Adams' ear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sorry, but there are a lot of people that I, you know, I feel bad for that maybe don't need my pity or my empathy, but somebody who I will never give it to is a soulless commercial real estate conglomerate. Right. Yeah. Just to bring it back to WeWork, even though that those guys were douchebags, they were very innovative in how they ran things. And maybe we are about ready to see someone is finally going to blink and open up that area to residential and consequences be damned and kind of force change again. So... Interesting times, without a doubt. Interesting times, but I don't think that a changing neighborhood dynamic is necessarily harmful for New York City. New York City will always be about collaboration. It will always be about multiple cultures getting together and acceptance and diversity and and creativity. And I don't think that people congregating in Forest Hills or congregating in Midtown will change that dynamic at all. Agreed. Well, great. It's an interesting story that we will stay on top of when we come back. Christine, profile on Brooke Astor. people to choose from, but I just thought she would be an interesting gal to pick out of the list because to me, she has this sort of iconic status. And I, I did know a lot about her, but I was certain and I turned out to be correct that there were things I didn't know. And so I thought, why not? Let's do, let's do Brooke Astor. So she was born, Clay, you're going to love this, Roberta Brooke Russell. Oh my Maybe God. you're related. In Portsmouth, New Hampshire, on March 30th, 1902. Spoiler alert, she lives to until 2007. So she lived to be age 105. Going along with our thesis that people high up in society and or with a lot of money tend to live a really long time. So so crazy how that it's works. It's really weird. So weird. So growing up, her father was actually a highly decorated major general of the Marine Corps. He has his own Wikipedia page, okay? So, like, it was no joke. And Big deal. Brooke was an only child. So due to her father's, even though she's from, sorry, was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, due to her father's military career, you know, she traveled all over the world throughout her childhood, which is probably one of the many ways she became such a, like, interesting, like, woman about town because she had all these, like, different experiences growing up. So something that I didn't realize was William Vincent Astor, who I think went by Vincent, his middle name, was her third husband. I mean, I guess if you live to 105, you have a lot of time to, like, get it right in terms of, like, a marriage. So, um, and her first two marriages are pretty weird, so I thought let's just do a quick rundown before we get to the life as Brooke Astor that most people know her for. So her first marriage was to a man named John Dryden Cuser. She was 16, and he was 24. For what it's worth, she later said she doesn't recommend anyone marrying that young. And her thing was like, you know, you're basically still figuring things out. You don't even know who you are. Like, also, you're a child, and it shouldn't be legal. But this was like a bad marriage. He was abusive. He was an alcoholic. He cheated on her. They had one son and one daughter. And divorced in 1930. So I think they were married for like 11 years. So she had this like miserable 11-year marriage with this man, had two kids, and then 
Dunzo. So then in 1932, she married a man named Charles Henry Marshall. This guy was super rich. (laughs) His dad, whose name was also Charles Henry Marshall, was a major philanthropist and society guy during the Gilded Age. Brian, the age, not the show. So this was maybe her first dabbling in this sort of like afterglow of Gilded Age wealth prior to marrying um, into the Astor family. So they didn't have any children. Charles Henry Marshall did have two children from a previous marriage. They were married for a long time. I think it was about 20 years, and it was more of a love match. Like, there wasn't any, you know, there wasn't any, like, statutory rape or abuse or adultery in this one. And in fact, her son changed his last name from Cuser to Marshall because he loved his stepdad so much, which is cute, but don't get too attached to her son because, well... I won't spoil it. Charles. A lot of, lot of life left to live here, kids. Yeah, everyone lives a really long time, and they don't always use it well. So we'll get back to him. Yeah, so this was like a, a loving, perfectly nice marriage, which unfortunately was cut short. He died very suddenly in 1952. So she found herself a widow. And less than a year later, she married William Vincent Astor. For those of you who are not as like nerdy about New York history as this group is, the Astor family... Again, was one of the great Gilded Age rich families. Astoria in our beloved borough of Queens was actually named for the Astor family in an attempt to get them to like invest and develop property in the neighborhood, which they never did. So to this day, one of Queens' coolest neighborhoods named for this family, and they didn't give a shit. Yeah. Um, never went. So Vincent Astor was the son of the Astor who famously died on the Titanic. So RIP, but that gave all his money to his son. I'm thrilled, by the way, for there to be a, a good Taylor Swift reference here. We've been slacking, I think, in the last several weeks. I, I check every week. To tie something into yeah, uh, Taylor a, Swift. But, a cold spell. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Smash album Folklore, which got me through many a long walk during the early days of the pandemic, has a song called The Last Great American Dynasty. And this is about a different family. It's the um, is Rebecca Harkness. So I don't know. She, anyway, she married some tangential member of the family, and so the the song "The Last Great American Dynasty" is like, oh look, like the one of the last people in this great family like married some chick, and she got all his money. But I don't think anyone would say that about Brooke Astor. So um, <laughs> this was not exactly a love match. It was sort of like what did um, Jackie Onassis said? Like your first marriage is for love and your second marriage is for something else and then you marry for money or something jackie loved ari's money (laughs) so the legend goes that vincent astor didn't want to die alone so he had an agreement with his second wife whose name was mary benedict minnie cushing that he would divorce her if she sort of found him a suitable potential spouse he proposed to some other woman who i didn't take note of what her name was, and her response was apparently, I don't like you. So she said no. Wow. And uh, Brooke was like, you know what? Sure, let's do it. And she's, it was sort of a, I would say like a neutral. There weren't a lot of feelings involved. The only thing that she didn't like about her marriage to Astor is that he was pretty reclusive. He wasn't very social, and she was famously incredibly social. So it was like kind of a bummer to her to um, kind of be married to this homebody. So this is fascinating. So not only was he her third husband, he died after only like five and a half years of marriage, which again, in a life that lasted for 105 years, only five of them were married to this guy who, in addition to, so she was once again a widow and she kept the name Aster for the rest of her life. And so Vincent had a half brother who he like hated. So all of his money when he died went to Brooke. So she directly got about $60 million, and an additional $60 million went into his foundation, which she also ran. And just FYI, guys, $60 million in 1953 money is about $1.2 billion. So here she is, Brooks, twice widowed, once divorced, and has like an unspeakable amount of money. So much to our delight, she, you know, she spent her next... <laughs> 50 years, almost, I think it was 48 years she spent as a widow, as the widow Aster. Uh, She both gave away a lot of money and was very active in, like, fundraising, getting her other incredibly wealthy friends to give money. And something that 
Brooke Astor decided early on is that because most of the Astor family fortune had been made in New York real estate, the money should be spent in New York and to benefit New Yorkers. So we love her for that. So she donated or raised money for a lot of the big names you'd expect, the Met, the Morgan Library, New York Public Library, New York Botanic Garden, etc. But she also cared about smaller, less glamorous, but in some ways probably more impactful causes. So some of them include... Things like new windows for a nursing home on Riverside Drive, fire escapes for homeless residents in the Bronx, a boiler for a youth center in Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, and vest pocket parks around the city. The Astor Foundation was among the first to support neighborhood and community-based development projects and job programs, and they had a grant program that went to a lot of educational programs as well as Central Park, the Museum of Natural History, Ellis Island, something very near and dear to her heart, which was the Animal Medical Center, which cared for the pets of the elderly poor. She had a huge soft spot for animals, so that was awesome. And then, listen to this, she was named a living landmark in 1996 by the New York Landmarks Conservancy, which said a list of the city monuments is incomplete without her name alongside. I feel like you need to reach the age of 90 before you can be called a living landmark and be like, all right, I'm 90. They can call me old. It's okay. Yeah. So 96, she was 94. She made it. Mm -hmm. And so she spent this latter part of her widowhood and philanthropy just being like the most fun philanthropist ever. She went out almost every night. She dressed to the nines, regardless of if she was going to visit like a nursing home to unveil the new windows or if she was going to some grand gala because she was just like people expect like it was almost like a little bit of a royal esque <laughs> connotation like they expect mm -hmm. Brooke Astor you know to look a certain way and I don't want to let them down and show up this like dowdy old lady so and what an incredible era in New York history for that to happen the 60s 70s and yeah. 80s yeah and and that was a time when, you know, public funding was dropping because there was mm -hmm. people were leaving the city and the budget was like abysmal. And so she was out there again, not only, you know, schmoozing to get these sort of glamorous, classic rich people organizations like the arts well funded, but also these smaller community development things that had a real impact on people that needed it. And so, yeah, by day, she's, like, saving the city. By night, she's going to these parties. And she would also, of course, host, like, what I wouldn't give to have been a fly on the wall, if not a attendee at one of her, like, luncheons or dinners. You know, and she lived on Park Avenue, and she was just, like, in addition to all of the good work that she did donating her money, she was apparently just, like, a complete blast. Also, so I mentioned, you know, she'd already been married three times once ended in divorce and twice widowed. In the years after Astor died, she received a lot of proposals, but she chose not to remarry. And in a 1980 interview, she said, I'd have to marry a man of suitable age and somebody who was a somebody. And that's not easy. Frankly, I think I'm unmarriageable now. <laughs> so she stayed. Honest answer. Yeah, I love her. I mean, anyone of her stature who was a man was married to, like, right. a 25-year-old. She could have had, mm -hmm. like, a cute little kept man that just, like, kept her entertained. So in 1998, two years after she's declared a living New York landmark, she gets the medal from Bill Clinton. There are some cute pictures on the Internet of her receiving that medal, and it's, like, insane to think that's almost 20 years before she died because she already looks mm -hmm. super old in those pictures. So I can't, I wish we could just end it there and be like, she spent the rest of her days happy and partying and giving away money. But on the topic of money, her son, who I mentioned earlier because she was the son from her first marriage. So his name was Anthony Dryden Cuser. Originally, he went by Tony. Then with her second marriage, he changed his name to Marshall. So he was basically Tony Marshall. He didn't take very good care of his mom in her later years. There was a pretty famous scandal, which was only about a year or so before she died, of elder abuse. So both physical in the sense of, like, neglect and certainly financial, funneling money out of her estate on the part of her son. And oddly enough, it was his own son, so her grandson, who, like, was the whistleblower, um, so he's basically calling out his own dad, like, he's abusing my grandma, she's not getting the kind of 
medical attention that she needs. Like she's kind of living in squalor and he's like taking her money. He sold like an incredibly valuable painting without her knowledge and all this sort of stuff. So that got a ton of news. And again, she has so many, had so many like prominent friends and supporters. I think it was just everyone's like, oh, Brooke's older. We don't see her anymore. So people didn't really know that she was in such a bad way. So it was... The extent of how she was being taken advantage of. Yeah. yeah. And so fortunately, it did get resolved pretty quickly. The New York State Supreme Court removed her son as the executor of her estate. Weirdly enough, Oscar de la Renta's wife, whose name was Annette, was like one of her absolute best friends. So she became she became appointed by the New York Supreme Court as Brooks' guardian. And then J.P. Morgan Chase Company managed her finances from that point on. So this all ha- and then she was moved to Lenox Hill Hospital to be sort of <laughs> brought back at least into what's a hundred and four year old woman could be expected, and then kind of mm-hmm. retired to her estate in Briarcliff Manor. And only about nine months after, you know, her grandson was able to save her from the kind of neglect that she had been suffering, she passed away. So unfortunately, those last couple of years of her life, and allegedly she had either Alzheimer's or dementia. She also was suffering from anemia. So in terms of like how much she really understood about what was going on, mm. she probably wasn't at that point. So that's like a sort of a shitty way to end it. But I will say it is nice to see at least that it was within her own family, like the grandson being the one that, like, called out his own dad. I'm like, okay, at least, like, the whole family, you know, it was at least comforting mm-hmm. to me that her own grandson, like, cared enough to to ring the bell on this and, and get her some better treatment, even though it ended up being, you know, she was only comfortable then for the last, like, nine months of her life. That's kind of a bummer. The, I thought the best way to end after that, because there's not much to be redeemed in that part of the story, is doing our supplemental showdown her i was like grinning ear to ear reading her new york times obituary because this was where i saw a lot of the stuff about how much she loved to go out and to go dance and some of these like quit quips about not getting married again or looking nice you know when she's out in public um i feel like this is going to be very inspirational face off because both of us are struggling with our voices so it's you know who's going to oh. overcome adversity oh yes best? listeners um brian is recovering from some sort of mysterious ailment and clay just like strained his voice i i i was at a loud bar last night yeah and, screaming yeah. in people's ears so um how loud was it in midtown clay uh, it was at some speakeasy thing at like two in the morning on 18th street between six and seventh Avenue. I do not remember the name. of it. <laughs> Sounds like a good night. Yeah. Well, yeah, funny. I would love if you guys could give us a solid, like, I don't know, just channel some gilded age energy here for good old Brooke Astor, who was, Yeah, one of the last Gilded Age heirs who certainly made a huge impact on New York City. But it was a changing social order that Brooke Astor oversaw. Hers was a society defined more by balance sheets than bloodlines. It opened its doors to entrepreneurs and Wall Street movers and shakers who had brought entree with so many millions that in the 1980s, Mrs. Astor declared herself Nouveau Paul's. Although aristocratic in upbringing, style, and social milieu, she never sought to be the arbiter of society that the Astor name might have entitled her to be. She never wanted to rule over a world that she was among the first to recognize was no more. At night, almost every night, even into her 90s, she could be found surrounded by crystalline caviar, done up in her designer dresses and magnificent jewels. Seated to the right of the host, she always was seated to the right of the host. If she nurtured a playful and sometimes wicked eye for the manners of high society, she once said that, unlike Queen Victoria, we are amused. We are always amused. She made it a point of showing her appreciation for people who work to help the needy. She always, quote, made an effort to use a phrase of the upper class. Yeah, I think I have to give it to Clay because that was my favorite part of it. Although, can I read something? I'm not going to do a voice. Uh, If she had any weakness, it was for her dogs. She always had several and called them her lovey babies. 
She loved Henry O.K. Astor, adoptioned, even after he bit off a piece of her middle finger. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. Guys, I, I, I feel like we fought for that, and it was worth it. It was. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I really was expecting you to go, like, full Robin Leach. Mm. Oh, like, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? That's where I thought he was Mm -hmm. going at first, and then I was like, oh, he didn't quite get there. Like, otherwise, there would have been more of, like, a caveat. Yes. Caveat. (laughs) Christine, you've seen the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. I feel like this was my flu game. Mm. Uh, had a bit of a an injury with my voice, but I uh, was innovative and worked around it. But noted and filed away for the Robin Leach impression in a future episode. Who's Michael Jordan? Uh, he's an actor. He was in the movie Creed and Black Panther. He was a villain in that. Oh, yeah, he was great yeah. in that. So I know who my answer is. But I'm curious what you guys think. Who who would be a, a modern because she was so notably like the last of her last of her kind in terms of that era of, of certainly New York philanthropy and so on. Who who do you think is an equivalent to Brooke Astor today? Mine would be Melinda Gates, mm-hmm. someone who and she obviously had a very different life than than Astor did, but she's someone who deeply cared about philanthropy and despite a what appears to be now very unhappy marriage definitely led the way in terms of spending that fortune for helping people that aren't as fortunate as she is agreed brian i was also going to say melinda gates so now i'm googling um, rich women in America to see if there's anybody else. Wait, who jumps what out about at me. one of our favorites, Mackenzie Scott? Yeah, I feel like we talk, like we've beaten that drum rock. <laughs> yeah, fine. I'm trying to think um, of someone who lived much longer than their famous spouse, man or woman. Um, if we're looking for a rich woman who loves to get divorced, let's look no further than my Limbaugh pick, Kim Kardashian West. <laughs> billion uh, net worth. I think we're on, what, her third divorce. Jesus Christ. If anyone's going to live to be 104 years old, it's going to be Kim. And if anyone is going to starve Kim to death, it's going to be Northwest. (laughs) Um, And then who is the last Kennedy wife that's still alive or was still alive up until very recently? Oh, Eunice. Was that Ethel? Uh, Yeah, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Ethel Kennedy died. Nope, she's still alive. She's still alive. How old? Partying. Get with the program, Ethel. Yeah, but I'm sure, like, uh, when she gets out there to Hyannis, she knows how to fucking let loose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. close to the press, kids. There's, like, an etched crystal goblet in one hand and, like, a lobster roll in the other. Love that for her. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm looking at a picture of her from 2018, and it's, like, it's been four years, and she's still... Oh, my God. And she was so cute when she was younger. Look at her. So how old is she? 94. Okay. So we need her to shake it off. We need her to get out and hit the town tonight. <laughs> this is what the country needs. Yeah. I want her out there in like a flowing gown, maybe like a bejeweled turban. Mm. They don't bejewel turbans like they used to. I'm sure she has some in the closet. <laughs> I bet she does. I wonder who's going to be our future last of an era people. Like, will Yoko Ono ascend to almost royalty in a way based on the Beatles and and all of that. I mean, she's definitely having like a redemptive moment right now because of the Peter Jackson documentary, Mm -hmm. but she also doesn't live very publicly. Does she? You're right. Like not as much of a socialite as Brooke Astor was. I don't think New York has a socialite like that anymore. So we're just saying guys, the spot's open. If anyone anyone with a bunch of extra money and uh, and a ballroom in their apartment wants to, there's a real vacuum at the top here. It is true. Who would be that person today that would be able to walk into any party and any party would want them attending? I honestly don't know. I know. It's so sad, isn't it? 
No, there's no one. Look, Bracaster really was the last of her kind, and we will, as they say in Game of Thrones, we'll never see her like again. Like, I feel like it's too little. We don't have enough of a monoculture anymore. Like, there's no. No one's captivating everybody. Right. Exactly. Like, if you wanted to say, like, who could get into every Broadway party, who could get into every industry party, who could get into every literary party, like, you could find someone, but there's just not someone who crosses over all of those New York society spectrums the way that people used to. I certainly felt like we, uh, before he turned out to be complete garbage, the Cuomo name was starting to become something. Yeah, their family, yeah, they were becoming a dynasty, but as it turns out, for the best that they weren't. Yep. Well, Brooke, you were one of a kind and the last of your kind. Yeah. Well, okay, so that's a worthy tribute to an awesome lady, Brooke Astor. I hope you're schmoozing and partying up in heaven. Or wherever uh, Gilded Age philanthropists go. Yeah, I hope you're hobnobbing with Nancy <laughs> Reagan in hell. <laughs> All right, well, when we come back, Brian's going to usher us into our medals of the week. Goodbye, Brooke. Goodbye. We are back with our medals of the week. It's a segment where we uh, celebrate a person, a place, a thing, sometimes an idea. One time we gave it to a steamboat. Um, (laughs) That has really dominated the conversation this week, and we feel these should be recognized for their efforts and accomplishments and sometimes for their failures. Clay, I believe you're going to go first. I'm back on the media recommendation train. This is from uh, PBS's Frontline series. This premiered a couple of weeks ago. You would be surprised if I told you that there was never a Nancy Pelosi documentary produced, but that's the raw truth, ladies and gentlemen. There's never really been a profile on her before. I recommend you can watch this for free on the Frontline website right now if you'd like, but really interesting story of growing up in an Italian political dynasty in Baltimore in the 1950s and 60s and just her uh, ascension from being in very liberal places like Baltimore, like San Francisco and California, and how she was able to apply her understanding of power to Washington. It's a very interesting tone that is set in that they interview uh, politicians on both the left and the right. And everyone says that she's an absolute bulldog in terms of, of how she fights. But no one is necessarily using that as a criticism because for a while there, at the ascension of the, the hard right political parties of the Republicans, starting with Newt Gingrich and that revolution, she was kind of the only person there for a while who actually knew how to fight back with those people. And you see almost a begrudging respect that the Republicans have for Pelosi because she was the only one who was actually strong enough to fight them. Uh, There's a very interesting segment in the film about when Obamacare was being passed and how... Obama famously was all about bringing people together and being very touchy-feely and putting the Republicans into the fold and and all of that. And she very publicly said, they are going to screw you over. They're playing you like a game. They're going to tag you along and pretend like they're part of the conversation and it's going to completely screw up everything. And sure enough, that's how it turned out to happen. And she was kind of the one running the Democratic Party for a while there after Obamacare because she knew how to how to fight, essentially. And uh, there is an incredible scene at the end of... Uh, I didn't put two and two together. The famous scene of her tearing up Trump's speech at the State of the Union was about 10 minutes after... Rush Limbaugh, who spent his career calling her a slut and too ugly to have anybody like her, was awarded the Medal of Freedom right in front of her. That was the same speech. So it all comes together. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's definitely not a a softball approach. They have criticisms of her, but they also talk about how good she was or still is as a leader and kind of the direction that 
Congress is going now. Are we more polarized because of Nancy Pelosi or were we always polarized? And she was one who kind of protected and, and looked out for democratic beliefs and initiatives. I think that that's a solid pick because when she became Speaker of the House in 2019, after the 18 midterms, I remember there was a lot of discussion, like the Connor Lambs and the AOCs were like, it should be somebody else, it shouldn't be her again. And I think in those last two years, uh, she outmaneuvered the Trump White House every day that things were in session because she was just able to outthink them and she had more experience and she's smarter than them. And I think a lot of people will bemoan that those four years were very dark, but I think without Nancy Pelosi, they would have been even darker because there are so many things that she was just able to kind of defeat them on because they just didn't know who they were f***ing with. Yeah, she's tough as hell. Absolutely, and they make a very good point of that, of if if she wasn't around to know how to battle Trump, there wasn't anybody else behind her to be able to do that in those years. So that's a really good point, Brian. And as much as I don't think she's a perfect politician, because there are no perfect politicians, that scene of her coming out of the White House in that coat and slipping those sunglasses on after turning down Trump's offer, that's iconic. Like I, <laughs> It lives rent-free. And what's funny is Chuck Schumer was right next to her, and like nobody even remembers that he was there. And... Everything that Frontline does is top-notch and is, is yeah. down the middle in terms of how they, they profile both right-leaning and left-leaning figures in American politics. So definitely not a uh, shoot 'em up or a comic book movie, but really good film. I recommend it. All right. So I'm going next. I'm giving a limba to two news organizations. One is Parade Magazine and one is MSN. Because the comedian Ali Wong and her husband... Oh, no, I saw this. ...whose name is Justin Hakuta, uh, announced they were getting divorced. And these two, Parade Magazine and MSN, announced that news with pictures <laughs> of Randall Park, who is a pretty famous actor. He's Asian-American. He was in... Um, Played the dad in Fresh Off the Boat. I forget his character's name, but he's... Uh, Weren't like they an, a couple in a film? I think so. I th they were in a movie together. Always Be My Maybe. Yes. Yes. The one with the incredible Keanu Reeves cameo. So they thought that was real life and that they Very were Very much not her husband. He's a wonderful guy. But he's, right. like, famous. He's also in the Marvel Universe. He plays, um, like, an FBI agent or something. God, and if you would have taken five seconds to do any type of verification research. And, like, Jesus. I can also tell you, he they don't look alike at all. Randall Park and Justin Hakuta, um, Ali Wong's soon-to-be ex-husband, don't look alike. And so a big limbaugh to both MSN and Parade Magazine for not a, either being lazy or racist or maybe both. <laughs> maybe both, yeah. Do better, guys. Do better. Um, I, I'd like to reiterate that. Please do better. <laughs> <laughs> to round us out, as we said earlier, I have been sick this week. Uh, so I've taken, uh, yesterday I had to take a half day from work and I was not in any shape to do anything meaningful. So I was able to spend all day on the internet just doom scrolling and shit posting. <laughs> Dank memes left and, and right. And I came across... This great story that has inspired my medal of the week. So we all know that Kim Cattrall skipped out on the reboot and just like that, uh, which some may say was the right move uh, after it aired. Kim claimed that now that she was in her 60s, she felt that she was done playing Samantha. And she had that incredible Guardian profile with the headline, I don't want to be in a situation even for an hour where I'm not enjoying myself. And many continued to speculate that the real reason was that she had a feud with her co-star, Sarah Jessica Parker. This week, Kim Cattrall woke up and chose violence. <laughs> she continued to add fuel to that fire because she got busy subtweeting and it left me with no choice but to stand. On April 7th, she posted a photo of herself with sister act star Kathy Jimmy, captioned, catching up on all the gossip. Now, this may not mean much to a casual viewer, but those in the know know that Kathy is a co-star of Sarah Jessica Parker in Hocus Pocus and the recently wrapped Hocus Pocus 2, coming this Halloween to Disney+. Plus. Whoa. She followed up on that post with a video of her with 
costume designer Patricia Field, who is the other major Sex and the City player who did not return for and just like that, captioned with, doing our own Sunday brunch thing. The level of shadiness, the expert level of subtweeting, and this on top of two performances that have received very, very positive reviews in How I Met Your Father and the soon-to-be-released Queer as Folk reboot. Kim Cattrall, we salute you. <laughs> oh, Christine, uh, you're on mute. Sweetie, you're, you're, you're either on mute or you died. Sorry, a loud truck By the way, we by. just had an introduction about working from home. <laughs> Damn <laughs> totally it. keeping this in the show. Um, oh, now I'm all flustered and I don't remember what I was going to say. Oh, maybe she's the new Brooke Astor. <laughs> maybe. Like, as I she mean, gets I'm... older and she gives less of a fuck, she's just here to like have fun and make money. Yeah. And start trouble. Yes. Good trouble. And you know she's dressed uh, to the nines wherever she goes. I love a multiple layer controversy as well so respect to kim cattrall on that well yeah because it's like for the casual viewer of those posts i'm just like oh how charming look she's hanging out with her her famous gal pals but as brian said if you know you know (laughs) and uh interesting choices yeah i think that parade magazine would have completely skipped over that because they wouldn't have actually read into it yeah, or they would have, like, mislabeled. It would have been, like, a picture of her and Jennifer Hudson or something. <laughs> right. Wasn't yeah. she in the first movie or the second movie? Here Kim Cattrall is, pictured with Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> Not that. Oh, oh no. God. <laughs> All right. Well, great show, you guys. Uh, yeah. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at The Limbaugh Podcast. I guess in closing, Christine, I'm going to give you a media recommendation, even though I'm not Clay, and that's don't watch The Gilded Age because the Astors are the bad guys. Ooh. Oh, no. No, instead I'll just drink some champagne in Brooke's honor, I think. Good. Yeah, but like at a nursing home or a hospital opening. Yes, something very, like, <laughs> philanthropic. Yes, yes, yes. Right, yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe just go to the Met and open a bottle of champagne and just walk through the halls. Mm. You have to be barefoot, too. Yes. I want to feel that marble on my floor. In this scenario, you paid for it. All right. Until next time, Brian, feel better. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good week, you guys. See you.